Um, I, I've been married for about 13 years now. My wife, Amy, um, we had our 13th anniversary about a month ago on July 31st, and uh, it's really fun. We got to go on like a little retreat with no kids. It was pretty awesome. And, um, you know, on our anniversary, we always take time just to kind of reflect on the day that we got married, you know, the day that, that it happened. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I remember about my wedding day. Uh, I mean, I, I remember we got married in this like amphitheater and I remember that moment where I was standing in the front and I saw Amy as my bride, like for the first time, like getting ready to come down the aisle. It was like this sweet moment, you know. I, I remember uh, the moment that I had written a song for her and uh, she didn't know. And so like in the middle of the ceremony, I got to pull out a guitar and like play the song. I just remember seeing the surprise and the tears in her eyes. And I remember, you know, us lighting the unity candle. There's all kinds of things about that day that I remember, but there's also this big chunk of the day that I don't really remember anything about, and that was our reception. Our reception was just like a blur. And if, you, if, you, if you're married, you may understand what this was like. It wasn't a blur because I was drinking too much, okay? I wasn't like drunk or anything, but it's just like you go to your reception and, and, and you show up and it's like every person that you love is there. And they're all excited to see you and there's like joy on their faces. And, and, and guess what? Every single one of them wants to talk to you. And they all want to say things to you. And I had more conversations in about a two-hour span than I normally have in about a week. And I don't remember a single one of them, <laughs> except for one. I remember one conversation from my reception. And I remember, I remember actually where, where I was. Amy and I were standing together at our reception. And one of my old roommates, he had been my roommate right up until we got married. Uh, he and one of our friends walked up to me. And what they said to me in that moment has just stuck with me over the years, 13 years later, I still remember it. But in order to understand why what they said had any meaning, you've got to understand a little bit of our story together. So this roommate of mine and I, we lived together in this house. There were like five of us guys that lived there. And you know, we were all followers of Jesus. We were all trying to grow in our walk with Jesus. We, we were aged anywhere from 22 all the way up to 32. And man, we had so much fun together. I mean, we goofed off and just gave each other a hard time. We would stay up late playing video games, stay up late pranking each other. I remember uh, one guy <laughs> almost had a gun pulled on him by another guy because he came home and he wasn't supposed to be there and he freaked out and pulled a gun, you know? And later we're like, dude, you gotta chill a little bit. Like, put the gun away, you know? And we just had a lot of fun, like when we weren't getting shot. It was a great house to live in. And, you know, but it wasn't just that we had fun together. Like, we would stay up late at night, like praying for each other challenging each other, sharing with each other, like allowing our souls just to be stirred with one another. This is just special friendship. And this one roommate that was involved at my wedding reception, you know, his story was a little different than the rest of ours. Now, he was in recovery. See, he had been battling addiction for about a decade when he and I became roommates, and he had been sober for almost a decade. So he had this long, kind of many years of sobriety under his belt, but he just had given his life to try to helping others battling addiction to find sobriety. And this friend of ours that was at my wedding reception was one of those friends. And, you know, um, this friend, for whatever reason, sobriety just seemed to always slip through his fingers. He'd be sober for several months, and then he would relapse, and you know, this guy didn't live with us. He was married and had a daughter. And sometimes his relapses would be so bad that his wife would just ask him to move out because she didn't want her, their daughter to see him that way. And when he would move out, you know, he had nowhere to go. And so my roommate would often come to me and the other guys that we lived with and say, hey, is there any way he could crash with us? You know, could he stay on the couch? And we'd always say, yeah, yeah, sure, that's fine, whatever. 
And so whenever he would stay with us, he always would be a part of these late nights of prayer and laughter and several of us were engaged and our fiancés would be there. And it's like he was always just a part of the house when he came. He was just always there with us. And so we're at my reception, my wedding reception, and these two guys walk up to me and the friend, um, not my roommate, but his friend, he, he looked at me and I remember he had these tears in his eyes. And he just said, Aaron, uh, he was talking to me and Amy both. He said, you guys have no idea how much you have done for me. And he was like, and I don't know how to thank you just for the impact that you've had on my life. And I remember honestly, as he's saying them to me, the reason I remember it is because I just did not understand why he was thanking me. Like if anybody had done anything for him, it was my roommate. He was the one that was practically always on call. He was the one that would always go pick him up when he had a late night binge. He was the one that would go on long walks with him and talk to his wife for him. And I couldn't figure out why in the world he would be thanking me and Amy, my bride, for, for what we had done in his life. And so, you know, I, I kind of just said thanks. I didn't know what to say to him, but I thanked him. And so uh, after, you know, about several weeks later, after we'd been on our honeymoon and returned home, I got to sit down with my old roommate and we were hanging out. I said, hey, I need to ask you about something. I said, at my writing reception, our friend, he like thanked me for what I've done in his life. And I don't really know why he was thanking me. He's like, what, what have I done? What did I do that would make him feel so grateful? I never forget what my friend said to me. He said, Aaron, he said, never underestimate the power of a group of friends that love one another well and welcome others into their midst. He said, you know, he said, being around people who are committed to healthy relationship when your life feels like a wreck is like medicine for the soul. And I've never forgotten that. You see, much of my adult life, I have tried hard. Like I've tried, I'm gonna serve people. I'm gonna do something really kind. And here it was a situation where I wasn't trying at all and it didn't even seem like I was doing anything and yet somehow it had this impact on this person's life. It was a picture of the power of God's people just living life with one another. You know, last week we talked about house churches. We talked about the importance of community when it comes to walking with Jesus. And we said, listen, if you wanna take your walk with Jesus seriously, you've gotta take your walk with your brothers and sisters seriously. That this week what we wanna see is that finding community and Jesus wanting unity and community for us is not ultimately just about us being a lonely group of people that needs friends, but it is so much bigger than that. And this is what we're gonna see um, in John chapter 17. And so we're gonna pick up and read John 17 to see what Jesus has to say about us and community and unity. And we're gonna be reading in verse 20. I'm gonna give you a little background as to what Jesus is talking about here before we jump in and read. So John 17 um, is, is the whole, whole chapter is a prayer. The whole chapter is Jesus praying. But it comes on the tail end of a conversation that Jesus has been having with his closest friends right before he dies. So when we read this prayer, you know that Jesus is just about to go to the cross and lay down his life. And for, for several chapters, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus has been kind of sharing his last words with his closest friends. And then when he gets to chapter 17, he begins to pray. And at the beginning of chapter 17, he prays for himself that he would have the endurance to give himself to all that God is inviting him into. And then in verse six, he starts praying for his disciples and those that are right there with him. Many people think that this would have just been Peter, James, and John. It was after Jesus had gone further into the garden and Jesus is praying for those guys. But then in verse 20, he begins praying for a much larger group of people. And that's where we're gonna pick up, right in the middle of Jesus' prayer. Look at verse 20. This is Jesus praying. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for these disciples, 
but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now I want you to understand what a big group of people this is that Jesus is praying for. He's saying, I'm praying for every person that will believe in me because of the message of these guys I've just prayed for. This is crazy, like Jesus knows all of his disciples are about to betray him and run away. And yet he still prays confidently for those who will believe through their message because Jesus knew that the success of his movement was not riding on the, the, the shoulders of these men, it was riding on the power of the message of the gospel. And the reality of what would bear out is that we have seen the message of Jesus, the message that these disciples would begin to go to proclaim, that has changed the course of history. It has changed humanity greater than any other message in the history of the world, and it continues to change humanity even today. And so Jesus prays for every person that would believe because of this message. You know who that includes? It includes all of you who would call yourselves followers of Jesus. Have you ever wondered, like, man, what does Jesus pray for me? We're about to find out. Let's look in verse 21. Jesus, he says, I pray for all those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 21, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus, as he prays for us, as he prays for all of our brothers and sisters around the world who have come before us and who will come after us, what does Jesus pray for? He prays for our unity. He prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. You think about the, the mysterious intimacy that is experienced in the Trinity, a Father, Son, and Spirit. They're one, they are connected deeply, they're one being, and Jesus says, that's the kind of unity I want for my followers. But I love what he says. He doesn't just pray for this unity just because. But he says, no, he says, listen, the Lord, if, if they will be one as we are one, listen to what it says. He says, so that the world may know that you have sent me. In other words, what he's saying is, listen, our unity, our unity is the greatest witness to the world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You want to know what's riding on us learning how to be family together. When we learn how to live in unity the way that Jesus is praying, then the world will see and the world will know that Jesus is who he says he is. Our unity is so much more than just us wanting a cool group to hang out with in the middle of the week. It is a witness to the world around us. But what kind of unity did Jesus have in mind? As he prays for our unity, what was it that he was longing for for us? You know, I think unity in our context, unity in our culture today uh, so often just conjures up, you know, kind of this idea of tolerance, this idea that we will tolerate each other, we will put up with each other despite our differences. Unity in our culture, in our context, kind of conjures up this idea of, yeah, we, we can all learn to just coexist. We can all kind of learn to live around each other. But I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind when he prayed for unity. I think he had something bigger. You know, fortunately, this prayer that he prays comes on the tail end of a long conversation he's just had with his disciples. And as you read through this conversation from chapter 13 to chapter 17, you start to get a picture of the type of unity that Jesus had in mind. In reality, this idea of unity or oneness that he prays in chapter 17 is simply building on or re-emphasizing something that he's already laid out. Look in John chapter 15 with me. John chapter 15, uh, just flip a page back. 
And uh, we're going to look in verse 9 together. So this is in the middle of Jesus talking to his disciples. And listen to what he says. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. There's that, this picture of unity. Just remain, be one. He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love or abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus is already talking about this kind of oneness, this remaining with one another, but he kind of lays out the building blocks for what this unity looks like. He says, I want you to remain in my love and I want you to keep my commands. In other words, what Jesus is saying, listen, the unity of my people, the unity of my people, is built upon the building blocks of radical love and radical obedience. That unity in Jesus' mind is built on radical love and radical obedience, and that these two actually work together. They are, they are, they are beautifully intertwined with one another. This is what it looks like to be united. And so let's want to look, let's look at these two words, this idea of love, this idea of obedience. What in the world do those have to do with us? having unity with one another and with the church all around the world. Well, let's start with this word love. You know, it seems like the obvious place to start, right? I mean, love is like just the most common thing that we understand when we start talking about Jesus. I mean, when Jesus is asked in Matthew chapter 22, hey, what's the greatest of all the commands? What does he say? Come on, what's he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love God with all that you are. And he says the second greatest command is just like it. What does he say? What's the second greatest command? To love your neighbor. He's like, everything hangs on these two. Like the entire foundation of Jesus' message is this invitation to love, to love. But you know, what does it mean to love? What does it mean when Jesus says, hey, love God? Hey, love each other. Is, is it just an abstract feeling? Is it something that we just chase after in our hearts? Is it, is it gushy sentimentality? You know, Jesus, because he's the one building the family, he gets to define what this love looks like, and he really does a great job of laying it out when he's talking to his disciples in this part of John. You know, I love it. Jesus is getting ready to leave, and he's not at first going to use words to describe what this love looks like, but he is going to begin with actions. You look in John chapter 13, and he, before he says a word to them, they're at a meal together, and Jesus finds himself on his knees, scrubbing the dirt and grime out from between the toes of the disciples who've been walking with sandaled feet all day before they eat a meal together. Jesus says, hey, you want to know what love looks like? It looks like getting on your knees and serving. It looks like taking care of the lowest job you can imagine because nobody else wants to do it. He says, as I have done for you, I want you to go and do likewise. And then in chapter 15, he'll explain it to them. You know, we just read verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 13 of chapter 15. Jesus says, listen, greater love, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. In other words, listen, for Jesus, love, the kind of love that he has in mind is a love that takes you lower where you voluntarily are putting yourself in a lower position in order to lift up those around you. You know, this, this love for Jesus only comes as we seek to get lower for the sake of others. This is why Jesus so many times, you know, throughout the Gospels, you see this uh, in, in, in multiple places in Mark 9 and Matthew 23 and Luke chapter 9, like Jesus is talking about what it means to be great. 
And he's trying to help his disciples understand. He says, listen, the greatest in the kingdom is the one who becomes the least. He says, the greatest in the kingdom is, is the one who is a servant to everybody else. The greatest is the one who becomes a slave, who lowers themselves completely. You know, this idea just flies in the face of our culture. You know, our, our culture is constantly filling us with the lie of upward mobility. Here, here's the lie of upward mobility. You know, the lie of upward mobility says, hey, listen, if you want joy, if you want peace, if you want purpose in your life, then always seek to make everything be going up and to the right. Everything. You know, you, 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 want, you want joy and peace, then hey, make sure your finances are always going up and to the right. If you want joy, peace, and purpose, hey, make sure your notoriety, how well known you are by people is constantly going up and to the right. You think about the way this works and, and the way Americans think about houses. It's like, hey, if, if, you want, if you want to keep growing, it's like up and to the right. You smart with a small house and you just keep getting bigger and you keep getting a bigger house. Or we think about the work that we want to do. The world tells us, hey, you know, when you first get out of college, you take kind of the low paying whatever kind of jobs, but hey, as you work up and to the right, eventually you get, get to this place where all that menial work is below you and beneath you and you don't have to do that anymore because somebody else will do it. This is the lie of upward mobility. But Jesus paints a different picture. Jesus paints a very different picture. In fact, Jesus shows the power of downward mobility. I want you to imagine this. Jesus, who is fully God. Philippians chapter two, Paul writes this beautiful hymn. He says, listen, Jesus was fully God, but he didn't consider that something to be held onto for his own sake. Instead, he gave it up. He crushed the lie of upward mobility and he reversed it and he came all the way down. You know, oftentimes we think of Jesus, he's been seated at the right hand of God, and we say, hey, well, that's upward, but I love this. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul addresses that. He starts talking about how when Christ ascended, he's talking about him rising up to the right hand of God, but then he puts in these parentheses, he says, hey, what does it mean that he ascended except for that he first descended? He first came down. Jesus understood. He understood that it all begins with lowering yourself and becoming a servant and slave to all. He who was fully God became nothing but a newborn child to a teenage unmarried girl in first century Israel being born in a stable where nobody gave a rip. Downward mobility. This was the picture of love that Jesus handed over to us, that we should be willing to become lower for the sake of of those around us. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's interesting, the, the lie of upward mobility, we hear it so much that it actually begins to creep into the way that we try to live out the kind of love that Jesus showed us. <laughs> you know, it's almost, like the, uh, the, it's almost like the humble brag was invented by Christians. <laughs> you know, we started going, hey, okay, so I mean, your greatest is the least. Well, man, look how least I can become. You know, it's like, I'm gonna show you how much of a servant I can become. And so, we go on mission trips and serve orphans, and man, we're snapping selfies the whole time and putting it on Instagram so that everybody see just how low we really are. Isn't that what we do? I mean, I do that too, so I'm not just pointing the finger at you. But see, that goes against the heart of what Jesus is trying to accomplish for us. He's saying, listen, no, it's about what's going on in here. He says, don't go lower yourself so that everybody else will see you and think you're great. He said, do it because you're concerned about lifting others up around you. You see, the love of Jesus is made complete when we're not trying to make anything of ourselves, but we're trying to make a lot out of each other. 
The love of Jesus is found complete in me when my mind and my heart are no longer fixated on my position amongst my friends, but instead I am fixated on my friend's position before Jesus. And when that begins to seep in, that I'm beginning to understand the love of downward mobility. You know, so why does this matter in the context of a house church? Why does it matter that we embrace this, this humble, like, downwardly mobile love for others. Because here's the reality, as you jump into a house church with one another, as you try to do life with each other, life is going to get messy. It's gonna get messy. It just always does. People are going to relapse. People are going to lose jobs. Someone's gonna get diagnosed with cancer. People are gonna lose their loved ones. People are gonna hurt you and and disappoint you and people are gonna act in confusing ways that you don't know how to make sense of and in the midst of the messiness of life, Jesus is praying for our unity, that we will lower ourselves to care for those who are caught in the thick of the messiness of life. Will we have the courage to be downwardly mobile in the way that we seek to love and care for one another? Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than one who lays down his life for one's friends. So that's the picture of love, this building block of unity that holds us together. But what about the other building block, the building block of obedience? You know, sometimes it can feel kind of fun to talk about love because love feels really positive, but man, obedience kind of just has this weird sound to it. So that's what a dog does. You know, a dog learns how to be obedient. So what does it mean for us to step into obedience? You know, the thing is, is that as Jesus talks about unity and in this talk with his disciples, he leaves very, wiggle, very little wiggle room for us to be able to say that love and obedience can be separated. He shows it very clearly that love and obedience go hand in hand, and that is how unity is created. Look with me in chapter 14. He says this over and over again. Chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, hey, if you love me, first building block, keep my commands. Second building block, obedience. Look at verse 21. He says, whoever has my commands, obedience, and keeps them, obedience, is the one who what? Who loves me. Look at verse 23. He says, anyone who loves me, first building block, will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. There's that unity talk. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. That for Jesus, this idea of unity in his family so that the world can know who he is, it is built upon this idea of love and obedience being intricately connected to one another in our lives. But why does obedience matter so much? You know, we can wrap our minds around love, but why obedience? You know, I can remember um, obedience is, is deeply connected to, to the importance of community. I remember when I was when I was in, started feeling called, my wife and I started feeling called into being a part of a church plant. You know, we were just out of grad school. We both had good paying jobs. And, you know, because we both decided to get our master's degrees and we had a mountain of school debt. We have so much school loans. We still have them. And it's like, you know, it's like, I can remember, that wasn't a complaint. Sorry, I'm not trying to complain, but we, and we just still do. I didn't really have it. Anyways, so we, you know, we get ready. We're working at these jobs and we start feeling God call us into ministry to go help plant a church, which would mean us quitting our jobs and moving to the other side of our country. And, you know, we had some friends and some family who came to us and said, Hey, this is foolishness. You've got school debt, you've got a job right now. Why would you quit your job to move to the other side of the country? It's being financially irresponsible. God would never ask you to do such a thing. And I can remember we were really wrestling with what to do and we had one family member that came to us and said, hey, 
I have a friend that I think you need to talk to. He said his dad was a missionary his whole life. Now his dad is retired, and because he never saved up for his retirement, he's having to take care of his dad. He lives with him, and he's paying his bills and all this stuff. You just need to go talk to him about what it's like having to care for his dad after years of, of mission work. And so we're like, okay, yeah, we'll go talk to him. So we went, I remember sitting down with this guy, and I kinda, we kind of explained the situation, and he said, hey, he said, listen, I know people are going to try to talk you out of stepping into what God has for you. He said, but man, I'm going to tell you, there is no greater adventure than doing life with God. He says, I've got the honor and the joy and the privilege of getting to serve my dad who poured out his life, all of his life to serve others. He said, step into the adventure. He knew I love to ski. And so he said, here's the thing. He said, a lot of people want to go through life just skiing the green runs and the blue runs with God. He says, you guys get out there and you ski the double blacks. And the whole meeting totally backfired what my family member wanted it to do. See, because here's the thing, in that moment, I needed an older brother to come alongside me and encourage me in obedience to what God had for my life. Because sometimes God's gonna invite you into something that feels like foolishness to the world. And when we need the courage to fully step into it, we need one another to keep spurring one another on into obedience with God. So we need communal accountability and being obedient. But you know, community is not just important when it comes to mission and the callings that God puts on our life, but community is also important when it comes to obedience in relation to sin. You know, none of us really like to talk about sin. Sin is this thing that we don't know what to do with. It's like, oh, it's just, oh sin, that's so weird. You know, but here's the reality. If we want to understand obedience, we've got to understand this idea of sin and why it matters. You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing about God. God is so good. He's unbelievably good. He's kind. He's unbelievably just and merciful. He's, He's beautiful and creative. That there is no one like God in his goodness. And here's what is so cool is, is that God created you in his image. Did you know that you were created, every single one of you, you were created to reflect that abundant goodness and kindness and creativity and beauty and love and mercy. This is how you were created. You were created to reflect that because you were created in a good God's image. But here's the thing, sometimes we have a hard time believing that about ourselves because we don't feel it and the reasons we don't feel it. That is the result of sin. Not always your sin, sometimes it's other people's sin that has affected your life. You see, sin is not a list of arbitrary rules and requirements to keep your membership and God's club in good standing. No, no, sin is this marring and blemish, it's this, it's this distortion of the beauty that God put within humanity. You were made to look like God in all of his goodness. And the thing that prevents us from being able to fully step into that is sin. And let me just tell you that God will stop at no lengths to uncover and reveal and restore the beauty that he put inside each and every one of you. That Jesus would go to a humiliating and agonizing death on a cross because he believed in the goodness of God's image in you. That somebody had to bear the weight of all the pain that resulted from our own sin and the sins committed against us. And Jesus said, I will take it. And on the cross, he took it on all on his shoulders because he believed, he believed in God's image in each and every one of you. 
He believed in the beautiful purpose and design and beauty that God put very deep into the depths of your, when he created you. Jesus knows that about us. And he understands that sin is the thing that prevents us from being able to fully live into God's image within us. You think about just some of the sins, some of the sins that we read about in the Bible. You think about greed. Greed is this unhealthy obsession with material things. And it is marring the beauty of God within you. Greed, it distorts the goodness and the generosity and the kindness that God put into each and every one of us when he put his image there. You think about sexual immorality. You know, sexual intimacy was God's idea. He thought of it, and it is good. But he designed it to be good in the context of a covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And anytime it is outside of that context, it becomes this blemish that distorts the goodness and the beauty of the image of God within us. Now, here's the thing. You know, later this fall, we're going to do a whole sermon on, on sexual wholeness and sexual brokenness because our culture has been just fed a bunch of lies about what the beauty of sexual intimacy is meant for, and it has this bent understanding of sexual goodness. But the reality is that sexual immorality is just this place that puts a blemish on God's image within us. But it's just true of all these. You just keep going through sins. You think about gossip. Gossip, this place where we talk illly about the people that we're supposed to love behind their backs, it puts this blemish on the image of God within us. You think about lying. Lying distorts the truth of God that he put within every single one of you. You talk about whenever we get self-righteous or haughty or we think we're better than somebody else, it distorts the humble and kind image of God that was put inside every single one of you. You see, sin is not just a list of rules, but it is this blemish upon God's image inside of us. Oftentimes, I think when we think of obedience, obedience to God's ways, so often obedience in terms of not sinning, we think is just like this individual journey. When we hear the word obedience, it's like, okay, okay, I gotta try really hard, I gotta white knuckle it until I can be good enough and get it all right and, and obey God all the ways that he needs, to, needs me to. But the reality is obedience is actually part of the communal journey. A communal journey is connected to obedience. What does this look like? You know, I, I think back to my friend group that I was talking about earlier that I lived with right before I got married. And you know, what made that community so powerful? You know, we loved each other really well. But here's the thing. We knew one another's strengths, but we were also fully aware of one another's struggles. We knew where each one of us struggled to carry out God's image in our life. We knew which ones of us struggled with laziness and need to be encouraged to take ownership of our life. We knew which one of us were struggling with sexual temptation. There was one point where multiple of us living in the house were engaged, and we just had an agreement with one another. We knew that if I came home and my friend's fiance's car was at the house and I came in and their bedroom door was closed, he knew I was going to knock. And I knew he was going to do the same thing for me. We knew which one of us struggled with gossip and feelings of self-righteous superiority over others. And anytime words would come out of our mouths, we'd say, hey, hey, have you talked to that person about that? We would challenge one another, push one another, stretch one another because we needed each other. And this is biblical. This is what it looks like for us to walk together as followers of Jesus. I think about the way that the Apostle Paul writes about this. 
in Galatians chapter six is this really simple, just one verse kind of statement at the very beginning of chapter six, verse one. He says, hey, he says, hey, if a brother or sister is caught in a sin, he says, those of you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently, but watch or you also will be tempted. Now there's a couple really cool things that we can take away from that verse. And this is really important. If you've lost me here, I want you to stay with me because this is super important, okay? This is, what, this is what Paul's saying in Galatians 1. The first thing we notice, he says, listen, if a brother or sister is caught in a sin, in other words, what he's saying is, listen, what I'm talking about is something that happens between people who are committed followers of Jesus. He said, committed followers of Jesus had said, hey, I'm in and I want to follow Jesus and I want to live by his ways. And we have this commitment to each other to help one another do that. But he is not saying that when you have an unbeliever in your midst, that you have the right to try to get in and manage and judge their sin when they've never made a commitment to try to walk in Jesus's ways. This is really important for us to hear. If you're in a house church and a friend brings somebody who's not a follower of Jesus, the last thing they need from you is to feel judged or condemned by you because they're not living by Jesus' standards. Why should they live by Jesus' standards? They never committed to. And if you're sitting in here tonight and you're not a follower of Jesus, hear me very clearly. I'm sorry for the times that a follower of Jesus may have just come down on you because you weren't living by our standards. You haven't made that commitment. But I do wanna tell you this, I believe that the ways of Jesus are beautiful and good. They're good. And man, we long for you to experience, not because we think we're better than you, but because we've been there and we, we've seen the goodness of life with Jesus. And so what Paul is gonna say is, hey, listen, when someone's caught in a sin, when a brother or sister is caught in a sin, this is how we as Christians deal with this with one another. It's just reflecting what Jesus says in Matthew 18, that we are to deal with sin with one another. But I love what he says, because he says, hey, as you go to restore them, watch out or you may be tempted also. You know, I used to think this always meant like, you know, if I had a brother who was struggling with something, if I went over to try to help him, I gotta watch out or I might be tempted by the same thing. But I'm not sure that's what Paul is saying here. I think what he's saying is, hey, listen, when you go to help somebody who's caught in a sin, be careful that your own heart doesn't become subject to pride or self-righteous arrogance because you're not struggling with the same thing. Do you know that when you fall prey to pride and arrogance, that you're falling prey to temptation just like your friend is? And so what he's saying is, listen, when we come to one another about sin, we don't do it in a haughty or arrogant, self-righteous way. We do it with humility. Because what Paul says is this, he says, those who live by the Spirit. And when you live by the Spirit, we understand that it is not because of my own effort or my striving that I somehow live up to this higher standard. No, the only way any of us are gonna be shaped into our intended image of God is by the Spirit's work within us, not because we challenge each other enough. And so we're able to, to help one another, humbly lowering ourselves to help each other grow as we battle sin because it is the Spirit of God at work within us. And so this building block of obedience, it's about being obedient to God's call in your life, but it is also about being obedient to God's ways in your life. And so Jesus prays and he says, Lord, I want the world to know that I am your son. And so he prays, he said, Lord, unite my people. Unite our family so that the world can see. And the unity that Jesus pictures is a unity that is built on radical love and radical obedience. I want to give you just kind of a word picture to help us understand how love and obedience work together. 
Because here's the reality. You can step into any number of churches and you'll find that, that some churches want to lean really heavy into the love aspect, but kind of leave the obedience kind of down here, you know, because it doesn't feel as good. And then you'll step into other churches that, man, all they ever talk about is obedience, but it doesn't seem like they remember this whole idea of downwardly mobile love for one another. And so how do these two work together? You know, this past week, um, I had to build a gate in our backyard. My wife and I are wannabe farmers. You know, we live in Nashville, but we have ducks and chickens and a garden, you know, and um, I was building a gate this week because we got to keep our ducks and our chickens separate. You all know how that is, right? You got to keep your ducks and your chickens apart, right? So anyway, so we're going to build this gate to keep them separated. And I remember going out there and I had these post hole diggers and I'm digging a hole. The way that you build a gate is that you have to put these two posts in the ground. And one of those posts is meant to be the place where your gate hangs and where it hinges and swings. And if you want to build a gate that actually functions, you need a couple things. First, you need you, you, the hole in the ground has to be filled with concrete. And so you stick that post down into the concrete, but you don't just need concrete, you also need a level. Because here's the reality, if you put that post in the ground and you don't get it level, when that concrete hardens, that post will be leaning sideways and as soon as you try to hang that gate, it will not function the way that you intended it to function. You need the concrete and you need the level to keep it true and level and straight. And this is the way that love and obedience work together. Love is like that concrete. It is the foundation that holds everything in, that makes everything work the way that it is meant to. And obedience is like that level that works to keep everything true, everything level, and everything straight. And you see, when you have all love and no obedience, you kind of get this culture where it's like, hey, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all good with each other, hey man, you know, doesn't hurt me, it's okay, it's cool. And at best, it's like being a post in wet cement that's never really clear which way it's supposed to lean or which way is straight or which way is up. But at worst, at worst, we think we're loving one another by being tolerant of the sin in our lives and we are actually feeding into the marring of God's image in one another. And as that concrete hardens, you end up with a post that cannot function the way that it was meant to because it's leaning too far. And so you see, we need that level to make sure that it is true. But what happens if you have all obedience and no love? Well, it's kind of like sticking a post in the ground with nothing to hold it up, but you're constantly checking it to make sure it's level. What happens as soon as you let go of it? It starts to fall. Oh, got to be fixed again. Oh, got to be fixed again. Oh, got to be fixed again. Some of you have probably been in these kind of religious uh, relationships where people are just kind of saying, hey, you're wrong, hey, you're wrong, hey, you're wrong, get it together, hey, repent, get it straight, get it straight, get it straight, get it straight. And they never come to you in a, a humble manner where you're always questioning, man, does this person even like me? It's stressful to live that way, and it creates a culture of heavy-handed, effort-driven legalism. And this is not the picture. Now, the picture is love and obedience working together, the concrete being the foundation that holds us straight and the level being the thing that gets to determine what is true. Because here's the thing, God is the builder of our community and God's ways get to be the standard. He is the great level for all that we need to keep our lives looking like his image. And so Jesus prays, God, unite them so that the world will know. Do we want the world to know? Do you want the world to know that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the savior of the earth. Do we want the world to know? 
Because our journey in walking in obedience to Jesus' ways is rooted in community and unity, and our best witness to the world is when we can learn to be a united community of God built on love and obedience. And so here's the invitation tonight. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you stepped into walking with Jesus, you were confessing, Lord Jesus, I need you to be all that God intended for me. But you were also confessing, Lord, I need your people to be more like you. And so will you step into living life with one another? Will you have that downwardly mobile love for each other? Will you embrace obedience in helping one another? For those of you who aren't walking with Jesus, I just wanna give you this invitation. Hey, you're invited. You're welcome here. And we would love to have you in a house church. We're sorry for the ways that we've messed it up, but man, will you sign up for a house church and come and watch a group of people who are trying to embrace the downwardly mobile love of Jesus while holding each other to a higher standard that is the image of God within us and see if you don't see something different. And so we're gonna go to communion. And here's my simple thing for us to do this week. As you come to communion, the body and the blood of Jesus, it is this reminder that as we seek to love and obey, we have one who went before us. He says, hey, you love me because I first loved you. And as we seek to obey, he says, hey, I've done it. I've done it perfectly, even though I was tempted in every way. And so as you take the body, as you take the blood, the bread and the cup, will you join, will we join Jesus in praying for the unity of his body so that the world can know that he is who he says he is. Let's pray with each other. Lord, we love you. So grateful that you came before, that you modeled all this for us. That Lord, you showed us what this kind of love looks like. You showed us how to become nothing so that others can be some, become something. Lord, you, you showed us what it looks like to press through according to the image of God within you as you walked a perfect life. And so, Lord, we come to you because we need you. But, Lord, we come to you together. Jesus, as we take of your body, as we take of your blood, would you just remind us that we are united, not because of similar interests or similar hobbies or similar ethnic background or, 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 or socioeconomic class or age, but, Lord, we are united because of who we are in you and the love and obedience you invite us into. So, Jesus, will you unite us with one another Unite us with the global church and unite us with you as we commune. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.